As we continue to work our way through the book of Romans, I ask that you turn to Romans chapter 6. This morning we'll be looking at verses 8 through 14. It's Romans chapter 6, verses 8 through 14. The Word of God. Now if we had died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been bought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that as we now look at your word, we pray that the same grace that saved us, the same grace that is keeping us, will now illumine our minds and grant that we should know that which you would have us to. Grant that we would grow in the image of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grant that we would be equipped to go into the highways and byways and preach and teach and share your word and influence those in the spheres of influence to which you've called us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I remember the first time I read Leviticus chapter 18, verse 22 and 23. And the thoughts I had after reading it, it says, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. And you shall not lie with any animal or so make yourself unclean with it. Neither shall any woman give herself to an animal to lie with it. It is perversion. After reading that verse, I remember thinking two things. Wow. That is sick. And then God wouldn't waste his time saying not to do something unless it was in our fallen human nature to do it. Now, why am I mentioning this to you, you ask? Well, it's because it was in and against this type of environment that Paul was writing to his readers here in our text. You named the debauchery and it was occurring or existed in Roman culture, pederasty, a, a practice where older males could sleep with younger males. Talking about a 45-year-old man sleeping with a 10-year-old, a boy, a practice that was commonplace, both there and in Greek culture. Today, there are folks who are now pushing for this practice to be accepted in our culture. They assert that they should not be called pedophiles, but rather minor attracted persons. A short time ago, I remember telling a family member of mine that it, was, it would only be a matter of time before pederasty was accepted in our society. That family member responded by saying, never, to which I posited a reminder that 30 to 40 years ago, they would have had the same exact response if I had told them that same-sex marriage would be normalized, 
then men would be calling themselves women and disenfranchising women of that which was rightfully theirs. Today, our, our children are being exposed to unbelievable levels of filth. Right here in the city of Ridgeland, there was a recent big dust-up about some highly debauched books that were in our public library. It's just been revealed that Disney has an established agenda to move our children in the direction of accepting that which the Bible forbids. Folks in governing authority on all sides, no matter what side of the aisle you're talking about, lie as naturally as they breathe in what can be considered a most visible display of their fallen nature. They engage in finger pointing for everything, no matter how obvious it is that they are culpable for that which they're responsible for. Our media is a cesspool of deception. Oh, unless we, unless we excuse ourselves and, and engage in our own finger pointing at them and everything that I just talked about, the most mature believer in this room is in a battle with sin and is not immune to falling to its cunning ways, to the, their own flesh, to the pride of life, and to the wiles of our enemy, Satan. Paul had already discussed or described some of this stuff in Romans 1 and had given us the reason why it was and is so. Because men, having been made aware of God through the things that he has made, have decided not to retain the knowledge concerning him. And so they, we, were given up to dishonorable passions, to the consequences of the base minds, hearts, and minds, filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, maliciousness, gossips, slander, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. You look around America and you add lawlessness in all ways. That, brothers and sisters, is a description of the world Paul lived in and an apt description of the world we live in now. And so it was in that context that Paul needed to pastorally walk his readers from where they were and who many of them were. Or as he says in 1 Corinthians 6, such were past tense, some of you. Such were past tense, some of us. You're in this world, but you're not of this world. So I need you to no longer allow yourself, Paul would say, and you find this in Romans 12 too, to be conformed to the sinful I need you to not be conformed to the sinful patterns of this world. Don't get your cues from this world, but rather be transformed through a renewal of your mind. And so then I asked Paul, I said, well, Paul, how are you going to accomplish that which you set out to do? Here are three things I would suggest that Paul figured he needed to communicate when he got on his knees and sought the guidance of the Holy Spirit. For I do not believe the Apostle Paul wrote anything, did anything without seeking God's guidance. And so Paul figured he needed to communicate what we should and need to know. He needed to communicate what we should consider 
And he needed to, to communicate how we should live and act in light of what we know and have considered. So first, what we should know. I'm going to touch on this point uh, as briefly as possible, particularly since Pastor Caleb and Dr. Kwasney have already visited this starting in chapter 6. We should know that we have a different orientation to sin. It used to be our master, but through the finished work of Christ, we have been set free, raised to newness of life. Hence, we are a new creation in Christ. Everything is in Christ. The moment that we step aside from Christ, we're done. We're toast. Every and all of our identity is in Christ. Therefore, that foolishness about gay Christians and other stuff like that needs to be gone. In verses 6 and 7, Paul expresses one objective of our Lord's atonement. He says, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that a statement of purpose that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. So it wasn't just about reconciling us to the Father and taking us to heaven, his attainment. But it was also to renew us to a new life right here, right now, on earth, in the midst of all the things that I said. Or as Paul said in, in Galatians 2, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul continues this, what should we know discourse in our passage. Uh, I'll pick it up in verses 9 and 10 where he writes, we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. It's more of what we've already been hearing again from Dr. Kwasney and Pastor Caleb and in this particular passage, it's repetition. So do you, you think perhaps the Apostle Paul really, really wants us to get this? Yes, he does. He wants us to know and understand that even that Christ, even though he never sinned, he had a temporary relationship to it. This so in the sense that he paid the penalty for it and for a time was under the dominion of death. But his resurrection, as we've heard, conquered all that, brought about the death of sin and the death of death itself. So at the end of verse 10, it tells us concerning Christ, so it is, as it tells us at the end of verse 10 concerning Christ, so it is with us. Jesus now, like Paul indicated concerning himself also, lives for and to God's glory. And since I mentioned the, the, the death of sin, I need to clarify or reiterate something here. I need to reiterate the fact that we are free from the power and penalty of sin, but not the presence and temporal consequences of it, both in the world and in ourselves in a fallen nature. Another way of putting that is sin has been dethroned, but it's still a powerful force on this side of life. And that's why Paul is going to take us where he's heading in the rest of this passage. Now, you know, just a, a little sidebar here. You know, there's been times when, 
when things have broken down in my house and, and I needed to find a tool to fix it. And, you know, I have all kinds of tools in my garage, and, and sometimes I can't figure out which particular tool to use, you know, whether it's a, a roundhead screwdriver or a flathead. Do they call it roundhead? Whatever. You know what I'm saying. See, right there you see what I'm saying, right? So it's possible to have a tool shed full of tools and, and not know which one to use when you have a task at hand. Well, in like manner, it's possible to have a store of knowledge concerning the Bible and yet not know what body of information or principle apply in a given situation. And so Paul, in line with Ephesians 4, continuing to concern himself with equipping the saints for the work of ministry and our sanctification, shifts our attention to the second what we should know in our passage Now, remember, the first one was what we should know, and and now the second is what we should consider. Look at verse 11. It says, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Here are three quick things you should know about this verse. Uh, First, in his sermon on this one verse, just this one verse, James Montgomery Boyce pointed out that this is the very first time in the book of Romans, the very first time in five and a half chapters that we hear of any exhortation or imperative. That is to say any command coming from Paul. I thought to myself, that doesn't sound right. Then I heard Pastor Steve Lawson say the same thing in his 2018 Bible study in Romans. So I decided to investigate for myself, and sure enough, I found it to be absolutely true. Verse 11 is the very first time Paul delivers any type of exhortation or command to us, to his readers. Folks, those who say that doctrine doesn't matter, for he spent five and a half chapters laying out indicatives concerning God concerning Christ, concerning the Holy Spirit, concerning the things that we need to know. Those who say that those things do not matter, they have a problem with the Apostle Paul and the second writer or the primary writer of Scripture, the Holy Spirit. We are absolutely supposed to delve in to the indicatives, for the indicatives serve at the very foundation of how we are to live, what we are to know, and it is based on those foundations of who God is and who we are in relationship to him and what he requires of us that we are able to stand as his spirit guides us in his word. The second quick thing I'd like to bring to your attention is the word consider. It is key to our understanding of this verse. There were two ways in which the Greek word that that this word comes from were used. Both have one thing in common, however. Both point to to that which is real, to that which is factual, a reality. Both deal with things as they truly are. In other words, it has nothing to do with wishful thinking. It's not wishful thinking. We're not hoping that we died in Christ. We're not hoping. It is a fact that he's providing. He is saying factually understand, foundationally understand what it is that I'm saying here, for this is part of the foundation of how you're going to be able to go forward in Christ, 
through the knowledge of who he is. The word that best conveys what Paul is saying here for me is reckon. Again, Paul is not saying thinking in possibilities or contingencies. He's saying that we are factually dead to sin and alive in Christ Jesus. Again, I refer you back to 2 Corinthians 5, 17. It says, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is, not might, not could be, but is a new creation. And since Christ is factually dead to sin and living for and to the glory of God, you, we, must do the same. It's an imperative. We are to do the same. Which brings us to our third heading. How should we live? How should we act in light of what we know and what we've considered? Having opened the reservoir of exhortation in, in verse 11, the Holy Spirit through Paul in verses 12 and 13 delivers three imperatives, three commands for us to observe, to live out. First, do not let sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passion. This to me is an echo of what God told Cain way back in Genesis 4. He said, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain did not heed the word of God. Cain let sin in. It took over and the result was a dead brother. Likewise, your mortal body, according to John McCarty, he said this, is the last repository where sin can have its way if you let it in. And how would you do that? Paul tells you, by presenting your members as instruments for unrighteousness. The word present in verse 13 points to a decision of the will. We've been freed from the power and penalty of sin, but, and we have now the ability to resist, but our wills can, is such that we can engage, we can accept, we can take that route. We can choose to walk away from what God has called us to. We volitionally, intentionally engage or disengage. Our wills have been empowered to resist. If it were not so, these words from the Apostle James would be meaningless. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. We cleanse our hands. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. And purify your hearts, you double-minded. Humble yourself before the Lord, and he will exalt you. God told Cain sin was crouching at the door. I imagine it was the door of his heart. He let sin in. Well, think of the same door as, as our will, our minds, and our emotions. Think about the things you've allowed to come in before and the things you know you need to resist now. Think about the things that you're allowing yourself to watch, to gravitate towards. Are they glorifying God? And if not, how are we to resist? 
The answer, Paul says, is instead of presenting ourselves as instruments for unrighteousness, we ought to instead present ourselves to God as instruments for righteousness. We are to become vessels of righteousness. Now, in Paul's day, the word instrument here in verse 13 was the word used to describe the military uh, weapons that were used in war. We are, in fact, engaged in spiritual warfare. Hence, Paul, in Ephesians 6, tells us that. And he tells us to take on, to put on the whole armor of God, the chief article being what? The word of God. Satan tempted Christ with the things of this world just like we are. In response, Jesus provided a perfect example of how we are to resist. He says, what, what? Through his word. Hence, Colossians 3.16 tells us this. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Again, it is the foundation of what we should know. It is the foundation of what we should act upon. And if we don't know the word of God, how can we be the Psalm 1 person that walks away from the counsel of the ungodly? Romans 12.1 says, which happens to be where Paul really opens the floodgate of imperatives and applications, practical application. It says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable or your spiritual worship. So how do we intentionally and volitionally, now that we know that we are in Christ, and as he is dead to sin, we should be and are dead to sin. We are supposed to know that as a fact. Yes, the dead man or the fallen nature is still riding us, and we'll see that in Romans 7. But how are we then to volitionally and intentionally walk in the manner that God has called us to? Engage the battle and be successful by the power of the Spirit of God. I want to provide or, or give you five areas of our members since he says to present ourselves as living sacrifice. We're supposed to present our minds to God. Again, we have to present our minds to the truth of Scripture. Everything in the Christian life begins with the mind. Our emotions, our responses to what our minds have taken in. You know, I, if you were in my Sunday school or at night here with us, you've heard me use the example of, of cake, of chocolate cake particularly for me, right? If I sit around all day and I say, I will not eat that cake, I will not eat that cake, and my eye is on that cake, guess what's going to happen? I'm going to eat that cake, all right? But if I turn around and my gaze is towards Christ and I'm walking in Christ and my mind is set on the things of Christ, then I don't even have to think legalistically about that cake. I'm just going to do what Christ calls me to, and he is going to walk me by the power of his spirit because I'm in his graces, because I volitionally placed myself there. 2 Corinthians 10.5 says, We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. How can you engage that, again, if you don't know God's word? In Philippians 4.8, we hear these words, whatever is true, 
whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Imperative to intentionally, volitionally think about those things that produce or tend towards godliness. Now we present our eyes, so we present our minds. Now we present our eyes. In 1 John 2, the lust of the eyes is said to be of the world and not from the Father. In Matthew 5, 28, Jesus says to discard your eyes if they cause you to sin. Lawson, Steve Lawson in his study stated that the eye is a governing factor in what will take up lodging in your heart. Job, understanding the lust of the eyes, said, I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then can I gaze or lust at a virgin? Instead of casting our eyes on that which is corrupt, our eyes should be focused, as I said, on that which is good, that which is pure, which is why Romans 12, 2 tells us again not to be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that what you can prove that which is good and acceptable in God's sight. We present our ears. What we allow to come into our ears have a direct effect on our spiritual growth. False teaching, slander, gossip, a whiny, complaining person. Again, Psalm 1, look at what it says. Don't walk in the counsel of the ungodly. Don't stand in the way of the sinner and don't sit in the seat of the scorner. Don't give ear to those type of things unless it is for the purpose of sharing the gospel, of bringing light to that particular environment. Instead, we should hang around with people who have a wholesome quality about them, and it reflects in their godly speech and character. That's why I try to hold, hang around with people who have that sort of character, because I'm trying to work on it myself, you see. I want to be like them, Caleb and Carl and, and, and Dr. Kwasney. I want to be like them when I grew up, you see. We present our tongues. James 3, 2, James says if you control your tongue, you'll be able to control your entire body. We present our feet. Again, volitionally, intentionally, we make a decision. You've made a decision to come and to be in church this morning. Those that come to go to Sunday school, they make a decision, an intentional and volitional decision, understanding that they need the word of God at every time in every season. And so they go to Sunday school for that purpose. Those who come to evening service, it is the same thing. They come to evening service because they know, I need you, Lord, I need you every hour. They know these things. And so they present their feet. They take their feet into environments that will produce that which God is looking to produce in and through them for his glory. King David, his feet stayed at home instead of being on the, on the battlefield with those whom God was using. To, and what happened? He ended up looking at Bathsheba, and we know how that uh, turned out. He broke every single one of God's commandments. I've learned that there are no neutral. There's no neutrality, no neutral in the, your walk with God. You don't just put it in neutral. You're either going backward or forward in the Christ. And so we present our feet and we walk. Again, not in the counsel of the godly, but we walk in the ways of Christ, 
Order my steps according to your word, dear Lord. You're either winning or losing, moving forward or moving backward. And so it is with the Christian wife. You're either growing in grace or moving backward in time and space. Finally, we present our hands. Jesus said, if your hands cause you to sin, cut it off. Ephesians 4.28 tells us, let the thieves no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands. Hard work glorifies God. Often I, I keep saying to people, look, just because I'm up here and just because those that are in ministry are, are up here in front of people does not mean that we have a higher calling than you who are at your job, you who own a business. You have the same degree and level of calling, and you are to glorify God through hard work, you who are in charge and you who work for those who are in charge. Now, interestingly, this morning, we are observing the Lord's Supper, and all five of the members of our body that I just mentioned are intricately involved in the sacrament of communion, as is our mind. God uses this to strengthen us in our faith, and he knows our frailty in our physical bodies, and he calls us to this table to strengthen us in that way. As I mentioned, in verse 14, Paul ends our passage on a positive note, noting that we are not on the law, but grace. This doesn't mean that we don't have to obey the law or the Ten Commandments or all that God has commanded. As one theologian put it, it means we are not under the reign of sin and our commendation before God is not tied to our degree of obedience or perfection. We're under the powerful government of grace, enabled and empowered by the Spirit. Those who are speaking an objection will then come and say, well, wait, we should just go ahead and sin then. Pastor Caleb will cover that next week. So in closing, as I mentioned in my opening, our senses are bombarded with sin, sinful actions and disposition. We wrestle with that which is without and that which is within us. But according to Paul, this is a battle that we can successfully engage in and not be overcome by because we have died with Christ and we're raised with him. We're raised to newness of life in the same way that he now glorifies God with every ounce of his being. We are called to do likewise and empowered to do likewise and it is a matter of our will and what we are allowed to come in and grab hold of us. And so we present ourselves to him, asking God, asking that he would guide us, keep us, carry us, and use us for his good pleasure and the benefit of the body. Let's pray. Father, by your grace, the power and penalty of sin has been taken away. By your grace, we have been made new. And by your grace, your spirit resides in us helping us, keeping us, and guiding us. We pray this day that we would give heed to that which we've heard this morning and present ourselves to you daily, praying that you would use us as vessels of righteousness for your glory and for your namesake. And Father, we pray these things in the matchless name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.